I am back for another week and back in my regular time slot. No schedule change this week, so I appreciate the loyalty of my regulars letting me talk to you. The two of you are really appreciated. You are listening to the Royal Ramble, and I'm your host, Blaine the Brain, and today we are talking all about Ring of Honor. Actually, I shouldn't say all about, but that is the key focus of the show. It has been a week of honor. In fact, Tony Khan and his friends at ROH have been pushing the idea that death will always come before dishonor. Kind of sounds like a Meryl Streep movie, doesn't it? Speaking of movies, I know it's not really wrestling related, but I understand that people are sitting through double features of Barbie and Oppenheimer this weekend. Barbenheimer, as the tabloids are calling it. Wait, do tabloids still exist? Anyway, I have not seen either, but I was looking forward to Oppenheimer all week, but was unable to get my mitts on tickets. I mean, sure, regular seating is available, but given the fact that I so rarely enjoy a movie in theaters, well, with all the streaming platforms nowadays, when I watch a movie, I need the full experience, so it's VIP or IMAX or nothing. And they were all sold out. Unbelievable. So I will unfortunately have to wait at least another week to see it, but that's the price I'm willing to pay. Fortunately, I don't have to worry about any spoilers. I did see the new Mission Impossible movie, though, and it was incredible. I mean, spectacular. I love how they tie all these movies together and make them make sense, and the action just didn't stop. It was like watching AEW Forbidden Door all over again and on a larger screen. Can't wait to see Dead Reckoning Part 2 when it comes out, and, and that's assuming that the writer strike would have been resolved by then. Okay, so let's talk about wrestling then, shall we? The ROH pay-per-view took place just two days ago, and it was a good one, but I just wish the company would place more emphasis on these shows. They had a long, long time to build to it, and the lack of effort they put into building was a little disappointing. Fortunately, the match quality made up for it. I'll get into my full review in just a bit, but first I wanted to talk about all the other major events this past week. Firstly, Slam Wrestling's Bob Kapoor and I previewed the Impact Slam Slammiversary show in last week's episode, so I wanted to talk about some of those results. We had a lot of new champions crowned, some of those title changes made sense, and others, well, not so much. I'm not so much a fan of someone coming in from another company, in this case meaning WWE, and instantly winning an Impact title. While it wasn't really instant in the case of Trinity, the former Naomi, it was still kind of obvious that that was the direction they'd be heading. Impact really suffered a drastic blow to their knockouts division in the last year with the losses of Taya Valkyrie to Neil Dashwood and most recently Jordan Grace, so this basically was what we're left with. However, since Deanna basically carried the division in the early years of COVID, I thought they would have given her a longer run, though I'm not so sure how I feel about her as a babyface. But especially if Mickie James is getting the title match when she comes back, or potentially to unify the titles, Deanna is the most logical opponent, as they can tell the story of her never defeating Mickey. I'm not so interested in a Trinity vs. Mickey program, and to be honest, I've never really been a fan of Trinity to begin with, though I will say that this Impact run is probably the best one of her career. Bob predicted that Kushida would win the Ultimate X, which he did, so that kind of makes sense, especially with his longtime tag team partner Alex Shelley as the world champion, though it would have made more sense if Chris Sabin was able to retain his X Division title. Given the way that title match went down, I was speculating as to whether or not Sabin was injured because it wasn't really much of a match with Leo Rush, and honestly, Rush is not someone I can picture as a potential world champion if he does exercise option C. And then the world title picture also leaves a lot to be desired. 
While I'm extremely confident that an Alex Shelley versus Josh Alexander match, Josh Alexander returned at the pay-per-view, by the way, but anyway, while I have no doubt that it will be a fantastic match, I fear that it just doesn't have any marquee value, especially since we've already seen it on a lesser show. That said, we still have several months until Bound for Glory, so anything can happen between now and then. To me, the money match is Josh Alexander versus Nick Aldis, but given the way Aldis was defeated at the pay-per-view, it seems like his impact run might have just come to an abrupt end. The summer is heating up, and on the other side of the world, so is the New Japan G1 Climax. It did get off to a rough start, and took a while to get going, but the last couple of shows were really good, I thought. Night 5 is really when it started to pick up steam. I can't remember if the Okada vs. Fantasmo match took place on that night or night 4, but that was the match that started to build the momentum. And then on night 5, we had some pretty fantastic matches, especially the Shota Umino match, and that momentum continued into night 6 with that great match between Shingo Takagi and Tomohiro Ishii. I could have done without Yano on those shows, but it is what it is. Meanwhile, the WWE continues to build towards its hottest party of the summer, SummerSlam, which takes place in just two weeks. What I like and appreciate about the build for this show thus far is the subtle teases. Most other companies simply just announce matches and then build to them after the fact, and WWE used to do this too prior to Triple H taking over creative. But lately they've been more focused on building stories and letting the matches come together organically, which is something that I've always preferred and appreciated about wrestling. I feel like we need to care about the matches first before they're announced. The ongoing Bloodline story is probably the hottest one in the last 10 years at least, and what I like about the Roman Reigns vs. Jey Uso match is not only is it a throwback to their original feud and the feud that started the whole Bloodline angle to begin with, but there are also multiple possible directions to go with it. On the other show, I like how they've been building up Judgment Day as the new top faction after the implosion of the Bloodline, and I like how now every one of them has a title or Money in the Bank briefcase except for Finn, which adds pressure to his match at SummerSlam and gives us a reason to care about a rematch between him and Rollins, especially if the Demon makes an appearance. Honestly, I've never been a fan of the character, but I think it makes sense in this particular scenario. One thing that hasn't actually been pointed out but is quite interesting is that it looks like we may actually have an even number of men's and women's matches at this year's SummerSlam. The only women's matches announced thus far are the one-on-one -on -one match between former friends Ronda Rousey and Shayna Baszler and the triple threat for Asuka's women's title as she will be challenged by Charlotte Flair and Bianca Belair. But then we have potential matches between Becky and Trish, Rhea and Raquel, and Bailey and Shotzi. I don't think I'm as excited about a third match between Cody Rhodes and Brock Lesnar as I should be, but the part of the reason for that is because it just feels like the same angle every time they're on a show together, and it's very cliche and boring at this point. Hopefully they do something different with it very soon. NXT also has their huge Great American Bash event next Sunday, which I will unfortunately not be able to watch live, although that Ilya Dragunov vs. Carmelo Hayes match looks incredible. But given the tease this week on SmackDown with Bobby Lashley meeting with Carmelo and Trick to potentially form a new Hurt business, it looks as though Carmelo may be moving on up, while Dragunov will be crowned the new champ on 2.0. The other matches on the card don't really excite me too much, but they still have a week to build to them. AEW also gave us another hot match on free TV this week. No, I'm not talking about the 2 out of 3 falls match between Bullet Club Gold and FTR, which has probably solidified its spot in contention for match of the year. 
but they also had the annual blood and guts match between the BCC and their allies against the Golden Elite, with Kota Ibushi making his in-ring debut. The match was fantastic, but I felt that it did more to advance programs rather than conclude one. And then, of course, I started talking about ROH at the beginning of the show, so it's only fitting that we end with it. So here's my review of the ROH Death Before Dishonor event. The main card started with a battle of luchadors. It was Commander against the newcomer Gravity. I thought it was a pretty standard lucha match, but Caprice actually brought attention, and I can't believe he did this, but he actually brought attention to Commander taking too long to set up moves. And at one point it did backfire, which ended up leading to his defeat. He did execute a Super Frankensteiner at one point, but then Gravity just kind of played possum and pulled Commander into a pin cover to pick up the win out of nowhere. The television title was up for grabs up next as Dalton Castle with his boys challenged Samoa Joe. There was a funny spot where every time Joe threw Dalton to the floor, the boys would just catch him and toss him back in, almost like a lumberjack match. Eventually, Stokely came out and ejected the boys from ringside, which distracted Dalton and the referee long enough for Samoa Joe to deliver a low blow and then apply the Kakina clutch, and Dalton passed out, so Joe retains. The four-way was up next for the ROH Tag Team titles. It was the Lucha Brothers defending against Aussie Open, The Kingdom, and Best Friends. This was one of the matches I was most looking forward to, and it did not disappoint, although I'm not so sure that a referee was needed here as he barely did any work. The Luchas got this one off to a hot start with dual Tope Conjiros to the outside onto pretty well all of the opposition. Aussie Open then started cleaning house, and there was a nice spot where everyone just started hitting pile drivers on each other one after another. Best Friends ended the sequence with what I believe they call the Strong Zero, but the Luchas ended up pulling the ref out, and then Penta blasted Trent with a chair, kind of signaling a heel turn. Aussie Open capitalized by hitting their double-team finisher, Coriolis, and they ended up winning the belt, which I think was a little surprising, given the fact that the Lucha Brothers didn't get much of a title run to begin with. More titles were decided in the next encounter as Mogul Embassy put their six-man titles on the line against the team of Watto, Taguchi, and Leon Ruffin, who formerly competed in NXT. They showed Big Bill watching on the monitor backstage, though I'm not sure what the significance was there. There was a spot where Taguchi was trapped in the middle and the big man ran at him, which he managed to avoid, and they just kind of took each other out. The heels regained the advantage, and the three of them just grabbed Ruffin by his arms and legs and flung him up into the air to just to pancake him on the canvas, similar to the Spirit Squad move, and that was all she wrote, so the champs retained. Katsuyori Shibata versus Daniel Garcia for the pure title. I've said time and time again that I'm not the biggest fan of Garcia. I think he has a very bland character and really doesn't stand out, but he is a good wrestler, and this was a pretty good match. Your ringside judges were ROH legends Jerry Lynn, Christopher Daniels, and Jimmy Jacobs. There was a sequence where they were just slapping away at each other's chests. Shibata got the advantage and locked on a sleeper. It looked like Garcia was fading, but then he started his gyration taunt while still in the move. Shibata eventually had enough of that. He released the hold and then delivered the PK to keep the title. After the match, there was a very awkward handshake as it looked like Shibata basically forced Garcia to adhere to the code of honor. There was an interview up next with the new tag team champions, Aussie Open. They basically said they won't stop until they run the whole world. There was a six-man street fight up next called the Fight Without Honor. It featured the Dark Order team of John Silver, Alex Reynolds, and Evil Uno against former Dark Order member Stu Grayson, now teaming with Vincent and Dutch, collectively known as the Righteous. I gotta be honest, I'm just so sick of these cult leader gimmicks. 
Former tag team partners Grayson and Uno eventually faced off with each other, and Stu ended up spearing Uno through the ropes, with both guys crashing through a table on the outside. Silver brought out a barbed wire 2x4 at one point, and then I think it was Reynolds who took a slam into a pile of thumbtacks. The heels managed to get the advantage on Uno and actually ripped up his mask, exposing his now bleeding forehead. Someone also introduced Lego pieces to the match and added them to the pile of tacks. Grayson and Reynolds fought up the ramp, and Grayson attempted a Death Valley driver off the stage, but Reynolds managed to block the attempt and drilled Grayson with a DDT on the ramp. Dutch made his way up there and got knocked off the stage, crashing through a table covered in barbed wire. A 20-foot ladder was then set up in the ring, and Grayson was knocked off of it through an outside table. This was just so nonsensical. Why would you climb a ladder in a match that you don't have to in order to win? That didn't make any sense to me. Grayson eventually took a bump into the tacks and Legos, and the Dark Order emerged victorious. Second from the top was the ROH title match between defending champion Claudio and his number one contender, Pac. I'd say this was surprising, but considering how good the main event was and that this match was kind of put together at the last minute, it really wasn't. Claudio delivered his giant swing on the entrance ramp at one point. How neither of them was counted out during this spot was beyond me. Claudio then attempted the gotch-style neutralizer, but Pac countered with a back body drop on the entrance ramp. For some reason, they showed gravity watching from a monitor backstage. There was a great spot where Claudio executed a military press slam to Pac over the top rope through an outside table. Pac tried a Hurricane Rana, but Claudio countered into a reverse flapjack. He then hit the neutralizer, but Pac kicked out. Claudio then tried the Ricola bomb, but Pac countered into a Hurricane Rana off the top rope. Pac then missed the black arrow, and Claudio hit a clothesline and then tried for the Ricola bomb again, but Pac again countered and applied a standing brutalizer. While in the move, Claudio actually managed to climb up the ropes with Pac on his back. I guess you can call that a backpack. He hit an air raid crash off the middle turnbuckle. As both guys struggle to their feet, Wheeler suddenly comes out to distract Pac, which allows Claudio to hit a running European uppercut to the spine and then follows up with a running Ricola bomb for the win. The ending was kind of overbooked. Basically, the Lucha brothers ran out and attacked Yuta, and then best friends came out to brawl with the Luchas. Which one of these guys are supposed to be babyfaces? I don't get it. And then Orange Cassidy comes out and hits the orange punch on Pac. He then tried to punch Yuta, who ducks, and Claudio ends up taking the shot. The main event of the show was for the ROH women's title. It was the rubber match between the women's Owen Hart Cup winner Willow Nightingale and ROH champion Athena with Athena's belt on the line. This was incredible and probably the best women's match ever booked under Tony Khan's watch. Athena's attire looked pretty cool as well. She had angel's wings as part of her ensemble, like one of the X-Men. Can we even say X-Men anymore? It is 2023. Anyway, it looked pretty good. Willow hit the three amigos at one point. Athena answered back with a belly-to-belly suplex on the ring apron. Willow then hit a crossbody off that same apron and then a cannonball into the ring steps. Back in the ring, Athena hit the eclipse, although I can't remember what she calls it now, but it only got a two count and literally everyone bid on this as the finish. Athena did a tremendous job of selling the frustration here, but then she applied a crossface and Willow passed out, so Athena retains. It was a great ending and overall a good in-ring show with some questionable booking, but nothing that took away from the overall quality. So that'll do it for another week. Next weekend, I'm away on Sunday, but will attempt to do another Saturday show, though that will depend on how busy my schedule is. If there is a show, I will preview the Great American Bash and SummerSlam events, 
And then there will be a big episode the following week with full reviews of NXT Great American Bash, WWE SummerSlam, and UFC 291. Until then, I leave you with an A-B-C-ya.